Hello, everybody, and welcome um, to this short podcast um, about how you prepare your workshop presentation for the Applied Life Sciences workshops. With me today is Lynn Robinson, and Lynn is um, joining me today to have a chat about how we advise you to prepare your case study presentations. Lynn, do you want to say a few words? Hello, um, my name is Lynn. I'm one of the teaching assistants and um, in the year two team, and I am facilitating the Applied Life Science workshop for the children's group. Nice to meet you. Brilliant. Thanks, Lynn. And um, as part of the conversation that Lynn and I are going to have about this, um, we're, I'm going to talk about some general pointers and Lynn will give her advice on that as well and maybe use some examples, Lynn. Yes, that would be good. Yeah. Great. Lovely. So I guess um, as you're all familiar by now, the workshop case studies have four parts. And what we're going to do in this conversation today is briefly break down what we would like you to do in those four parts um, so that there's not any overlap in the material that you're presenting between the different parts. So with part one, what we really want you to draw on there is keep it quite um, simple. Don't get too medical. Um, in terms of part one, we'd like you to give a definition of the condition. Again, keep it simple and so that your patient can understand. And that's really important um, when you're talking to the patients that you use language and communicate with them at a level that they're going to understand you. You might want to include some statistics. And again, it doesn't have to be very medical. You don't need to use statistics from medical journals, but you could talk about um, if a dissimilar uh, disease or an illness is fairly common and prevalent, or indeed if it's fairly rare, just using language like that. The next part of part one we'd like you to look at is identifying the signs and symptoms of the condition. Now, you should refer to the case study in this for this part of part one. But we don't want you to get into too much detail here. So a list is more than adequate here. Pull out the key signs and symptoms that you find noted in the case study. And also then, if there's anything in that is not mentioned in the case study, but it's a fairly common sign or symptom of that condition, it would be good to mention it here as well, because that would feed in to part two that you're going to look at in a second. The last thing we think you should pull out in part one is just again mention any risk factors that might predispose a person to a given condition. Is there anything you want to say about that, Lynn? Part yes, one. I was just thinking if there's any statistics, like for example, bronchiolitis um, mainly occurs in, in infants and babies under the age of two. You know, is there a peak incidence? Is there a particular time of year? Just thinking about signs and symptoms, we just want you to identify, you know, things like a cough, wheeze, fever, and um, there may be other signs and symptoms which are less common. So you could mention these if, if you have um, found them in the literature. And the other thing is thinking about risk factors, for example, um, in bronchiolitis, um, the risk factors are increased with preterm infants, um, especially those born less than 32 weeks gestation. Um, infants with chronic lung dis disease are at increased risk and um, age, for example, in children um, under three months are more at risk of, of developing bronchitis. 
Great, Ren. Then that's fantastic. I suppose I should have said at the outset, Lynn's using bronchiolitis as um, an example because the children's students, their case study was about bronchiolitis last week in applied life sciences. But a lot of the same signs and symptoms and the underlying pathophysiology of bronchiolitis and asthma are very, very similar. So it's all very transferable. So um, in terms then of part two of the case study, what we want you to be thinking about here is describing the signs and symptoms and relating them to the pathophysiology. So you've told us what they are in a simple, straightforward list in part one. But now in part two, we need you to elaborate a bit more on those, describe them and um, what's happening in terms of the changes to the pathophysiology. So the normal anatomy physiology has been disrupted. How has that changed? And that's the development of pathophysiology. And as we've said before in the Applied Life Science lectures, always think about what's happening at a cellular or tissue level to cause the symptoms that you're seeing or that's been reported. So think about the changes at a normal or the changes to normal anatomy physiology. What's changed at the cellular tissue level that could explain the signs and symptoms that we've just identified? What do you think, Lynn? So I was thinking just, yes, Catherine, I agree with everything you've said. And I was just thinking in relation to bronchiolysis, you know, thinking about what is causing this, this symptom. For example, why would a child with bronchiolitis have decreased oxygen levels? Think what's happening. Think about the narrow airways. Think about the inflammation. Think about the mucus secretion. So think of why all these things are happening and being able to explain them. Brilliant, yeah. And as I said, Lynn, and, and you would agree from an asthma point of view as well, a lot of those are quite similar. Um, so you have wheeze, you have inflammation, you have mucus secretion, and all of these are down to um, the pathophysiology. These are the changes that have occurred to the normal AMP that help us to explain why we're seeing the signs and symptoms of cough, of wheeze, of shortness of breath. Lovely. So if we move on to part three then, in part three we want you to think more about um, the clinical decision making. So why are you doing the things you're doing in terms of the care management of the patient, the diagnostic tools that we use to identify and diagnose a problem? And why do we do that in this way? And again, thinking about the signs and symptoms we've just identified and explained. So how do we diagnose a problem? How are we going to help the patient get better? What decisions might you make in terms of, in, that would inform your care plan for your patient? Anything you want to add to that, Lynn? Well, I was thinking, for example, the child with bronchiolitis. So you're thinking about the nursing management. So um, we had talked about earlier about low oxygen saturation. Mm -hmm. um, so what are you going to do to manage the symptoms? So first of all, you need to know that they have low oxygen saturation. So you're mm -hmm. going to monitor them. Um, you're going to monitor that child continuously. Um, you're going to position the child to aid their breathing. Um, are you going to administer oxygen? You know, is there anything else that you're going to do? Think also as well, um, Decrease, they would have it may have a decreased oral intake because maybe with the mucus production um, mm -hmm. and feeding. 
um, they mightn't be able to keep foods down. So firstly, you'd want to encourage oral fluids as tolerated. If you're going to monitor and the in intake and the output, you're going to consider, you know, if the child is vomiting, you know, is there an alternative? What are you going to do? Possibility NG feeding. And, you know, if that's not tolerated, you're going to maybe consider the IV fluids. Lovely. And I think I'm, I'm sure you'd agree, Lynn, that a lot of what you've said there is applicable in many different conditions, not just bronchiolitis. Definitely. It's applicable yeah. in all areas. And, and, and I think, you know, that's one of the things we want people to take away, isn't it, from the Applied Life Sciences workshops is that, OK, we might be talking about one particular condition, but things like these management strategies you've just outlined are very much, you know, transferable to lots of different situations and management um, of different conditions. Yes, definitely. Great. So we'll just move on to part four then. And this is the last part of the case study that we want you to look at. And really here it's about patient education and making sure that your patient understands what's wrong with them and how you, we are working to make them better or to at least make them more comfortable. And sometimes it's not just the patient that you have to bear in mind, but perhaps um, a caregiver who is accompanying the patient. In the case of a young person, that could be a parent, or in the case of the older person, it could be um, an older, an elderly or older adult who has um, a carer who accompanies them for treatment. So things to consider might be um, checking, of course, that the patient understands, using appropriate communication at all times, and always checking that the patient and the person that you're speaking, that may be accompanying them, that they fully understand what you've told them and give them the opportunity to ask any questions. Anything you'd want to come in on there, Lynn? Yes, that's important too with children. Um, just if, mm -hmm. if you have a child um, that you're nursing, um, that, you know, you don't just like give the parents the advice, but, you know, give the child the information and give it to and give it to them in a language that they can understand. Um, and also involve the parents in that as well. Things to consider, I would be thinking about, you know, you're given the information that the information is easy to understand. You're, you know, checking that they understand what you've said and giving them the opportunity to ask questions. So you're engaging mm -hmm. them in the decision making because um, it, it's their condition and also the importance of good communication. Um, because as you know, in nursing, that is key and just keeping them updated on any changes. And then in relation to discharge advice, just um, giving them um, the right advice, giving them maybe leaflets if they're available, contact numbers, signs to look out for if it's a long term condition, you know, if there was mm -hmm. a relapse, what signs and symptoms should be looking out for, who you need to contact first, who's the first port of call. Um, and just if there's any other um, community support that they will have in place that, that you give them them details. Brilliant. And you said something there, Lynn, and it made me think, you know, when you mentioned about speaking to the child as, as much as the child has the capacity to understand and as equally as you inform their parent or their, their caregiver who is with them, 
And a lot of that really applies, wouldn't you agree, with, um, as I mentioned earlier on, with the older adult who maybe also doesn't have, um, who needs someone with them to support them in, in, in their care, but also people with learning disabilities or mental health issues that, you know, again, that we don't forget that you, you speak to the person first and foremost. And I suppose that's maybe one of the things that underpins patient-centred care in general, really, doesn't it? Yes, definitely. In all those different phases, you have to consider consider the the patient that you're looking after and putting them at the centre of the care. Mm -hmm. You want to involve them in their care and not forget about them. Lovely. Yeah, I think that's that's fundamental, isn't it, in terms of how we approach it as a holistic thing. Um, I suppose the final thing we wanted to say about. Um, the Applied Life Sciences workshops and how you prepare for them is all of us to consider two things. Um, the first one being evidence-based nursing practice. So in, in your research that you're using appropriate sources to inform um, the, the presentation that you put together. And the second thing would be always being mindful to um, equality, diversity and inclusion considerations. So we mentioned people um, like who maybe have learned disability or mental health issues, that they're equally as um, considered and involved in their own treatment and in their decision making processes about their treatment. And also, um, and Lynn, you maybe mentioned this earlier about when you're communicating with patients, that maybe things like people whose English is not their first language, that you provide the relevant sources there in terms of supporting those patients and their families. Yes, definitely. There, yeah, there's a lot of things to consider. And again, especially evidence-based nursing, like accessing journals, accessing government guidelines, and there's some very, very good um, applied life sciences um, books for nurses out there. So accessing them. Brilliant, lovely. Um, I think we've we've covered the four parts, Lynn, haven't we? Um, I just sort of hope that what we've done here in having this chat is really just helping to tease out what we're really looking for in each of the four parts. So we hope you find it useful. Um, I don't I don't really have anything else to say unless there's anything you want to come in on, and Lynn. No, I just want to say I hope that um thank them for taking the time to listen to, to what we have said and we hope that it's been beneficial for them and going forward in their presentations. Absolutely and we hope that um, you know the, what we've said today applies to all of the presentations not just the bronchiolitis one we're just using it as an example and um, to sort of show you how you can work through the four different parts but we do hope you find it useful and like, we'd love to hear your feedback if there's anything else we can do to help support you in these please don't be afraid to ask and as Lynn says thank you for listening.